Well, we will uh, we will get started. Um, come to the last little paragraph of Revelation chapter one this morning. So, uh, ready to start next week with the uh, letters to the seven churches. The first one, but we'll start with uh, chapter one. And uh, just as we open, though, right at the close of our our class uh, last week. You know, we announced that uh, Amber Waldheisen had been taken into the hospital, which she certainly had, and it turned out to have been a a cardiac event and uh, of a a really quite extremely serious nature. And uh, and by uh, 5.30 Sunday afternoon, um, things really looked pretty bleak up there. And the uh, uh, a physician that was up there, uh, Dr. Lee, uh, speaking to Adam about the situation, uh, it was, uh, there was, there, there were absolutely no positive things being said at all when, uh, in fact, he would he did not refer to her as stable but stable ish he said I think we could say that she's stable ish um, and then Monday she just started to improve rapidly and uh, they uh, Exubated her for, they meant to just take it out and put it back in in the afternoon, but when they took it out, she was doing so well that um, a nurse that had been observing her argued vociferously, you know, we should give her time, don't put it back in. I don't think it needs to go back in. And they gave it that time and it didn't go back in. And by uh, Tuesday uh, noon, there she was sitting up in her chair by her bed, just a little oxygen in, got a defibrillator put in on Friday, uh, and then went home uh, Friday afternoon. So uh, the Wolteisen family is certainly uh, thanking the Lord, praising the Lord for uh, what it certainly is experienced as a miraculous Turnaround by what they were being told uh, throughout the afternoon and evening up in the ICU at uh, at Sanford. So that's uh, that's just an update of the prayer request that we shared uh, last week. So uh, we'll begin by just thanking the Lord for that as we go into our time. Father in heaven, we do thank you for sparing Amber. Uh, last week. Thank you, Lord, for first responders that show up and get somebody's heart back going. Lord, we thank you for emergency room doctors who take patients in. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the ICU and all of the people that are up there with uh, such care and expertise and technological advancements beyond uh, 
earlier generations' wildest dreams. And yet at the end of the day, it is you who's brought all these things to pass. It's you who create people in your image, who learn such things and who come to these areas of expertise and who become so precise. And it's you that reaches in and can heal the human heart and can restore life and give back health. And we pray that Amber would continue to strengthen, uh, that uh, those that are looking at her case would be given tremendous insight into what happened and how best to serve her going forward. But we just thank you so much for sparing her, for Adam, uh, for their three children and their broader family and our church family as well. So, Lord, we, we thank you so much for your mercy and kindness uh, to Amber. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 1, 17 to 20. Um, sort of a summary of what's been going on in chapter 1 is uh, captured nicely by a book. I, I, I thought the book was relatively mediocre, but the title, the title is fantastic. From uh, 26 years ago, a guy in the biblical counseling movement by the name of Ed Welk uh, wrote a book that, that was titled, When People Are Big and God is Small. When people are big and God is small. Um, that's, that's just such of a great title because it so well reflects the experience of certainly the average person, but I think even the experience of the average Christian, especially if you spread it out as the book of Revelation, will insist that we do into something like this. When, when the Roman Empire is big and Jesus is small, uh, when American culture is big and, and Jesus is small, uh, because that seems to be what we see when, when we look out on life and on the culture that we live in, is that cultural trends and messaging is impressive, and uh, we see you know stadiums fill up for football, and we see political campaigns, and we watch the news and are told what is important and what is not important, or at least by neglect, what isn't all that important. And, and certainly by neglect, uh, Jesus is of almost no importance whatsoever um, in, our, in our cultural context. And, and if we're not careful... That 
becomes our actual default worldview. Oh, officially we believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and, um, you know, and have, you know, hope that we'll go to heaven when we die. He's, he's, he's good for that and we're Christians and so we do believe that kind of thing. But in the big picture of things, frankly, how important is he? How big is he? And we're tempted to think not very big. And John would have been tempted to think that way on the island of Patmos. Here he is, he's a follower of Jesus and worked in the church of Ephesus. And as we'll see as we get into the seven churches, Ephesus as a church is a mixed bag, but now John has been exiled out to this island by Roman authorities. And and that's that's where he's at. And that's where he receives this vision which stands that sense of reality on its head and switches back over to a situation whereby this vision, John is assured, and through him we are assured, that Jesus is big. And the culture of the moment as powerful and glorious as it understands itself to be, and as it seems to be, is really small in the whole scheme of things um, and doomed in the whole scheme of things. Just before we uh, turn to verse 17, just drop back a few pages to 1 John 5, 19, and 20. 1 John 5, 19, and 20, where we read this. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lay In the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and He has given to us understanding in order that we may know the truth. Now, here's the really interesting line. And we are in the truth. And in his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and life eternal. Speaking of Christian people, we know that we are from God. And this this vast, impressive, impressed with itself, culture that we look out on, these political empires, 
They lay in the evil one. We, by God's grace, have come to know the truth. We're in the truth. And in his son. Well, there very clearly the truth is simply a a title for God. We're in God, the truth. The great truth teller. Now, I mentioned that because that's the presuppositional perspective of Christians as they read something like the book of Revelation. This this view of reality is, is the accurate one. Not, not reality as it's presented, you know, at Harvard Divinity School or as the University of Chicago, where all the smart people are relativists. And, and everyone knows that the wave of the future is relativism and sexual... Uh, uh, advancement and gender fluidity and all the catchwords of the present cultural moment. That's the big reality rolling forward. And then you open the Bible and say, no, that isn't. Uh, that's, that's a deceived, cursed, cultural situation going nowhere going nowhere quite doomed really Um, well that's where uh, we begin uh, Revelation 117 and when I saw him I fell to his feet as dead and he put his right hand upon me saying fear not I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, that which you have seen, and that which is, and that which is about to be after these things. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw Upon my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels, the seven churches. And the seven gold lampstands are the seven churches. Now in this vision that we looked at um, last time, verses 12 to 16... Um, The whole point of that vision is, to use Ed Welk's little title uh, backwards, Jesus is big. Jesus is big. Remember, we we can't review it, but there's Old Testament passages behind every one of these little descriptions of Jesus. When I turned... To see the voice that was speaking to me, on turning I saw seven gold lampstands, and in the midst of them, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, gold sash around his chest. The hairs in his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet 
were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Uh, So here is this absolutely monumental picture of the glorified Christ. And he is unbreakably identified, not with the emperor in Rome or any of the movers and shakers of the time, but with these seven churches scattered about in Asia. Um, And John is being told that, that it's with these churches that the big things are going on in the world. And John responds to this reality, the only way that you can properly respond to it, and that is with humility. And so he falls to his the feet of the person in the vision as a, like is a dead man. Uh, and yet, this is a very personal experience for this person in the vision, the one like the Son of Man, reaches forth his hand and places it on John and then speaks to him, speaks to him. Uh, Now, we won't uh, take the time to look these two up, but if you go and look at Daniel 8.18 and Ezekiel 1.28, and we will look at Ezekiel 1.28, so we'll just look at one of the two. They both have the same thing in common. That is, they are clearly visions of God. They are straightforwardly visions of God. Um, uh, 128, of course, comes from really a a chapter-long, really weird vision of God that Ezekiel sees and records. And he says, Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so is the appearance of the dark of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God when I saw it. And I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. So you see the exact parallel. Only Ezekiel, he's seeing a vision of God. He falls on his face and then God speaks to him. John sees Jesus, and he falls on his face, and then Jesus speaks to him, clearly indicating that John is telling us uh, Jesus is, is God. This is very much a Trinitarian sort of statement. You find the same thing in Daniel 8.18. 
It is a vision of God, and God speaks. And Jesus is acquainted with these two texts, and the vision in John is to bring Daniel 8.18 and Ezekiel 1.28 clearly to mind so as to tell us that in some very real way, Jesus is the one true God. And later creeds will just speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as being three persons in one essence. So this would be an emphasis on the one essence. The Father essentially is the Son, though they're distinguished as to person, as to essence. God, Father, Son, and Spirit are one thing. And John is emphasizing that oneness in this vision. Uh, And his response is a proper response to deity. Then he's told, fear not. Fear not. Uh, Don't be afraid. Uh, Well, too late, right? He's so afraid he's fallen at his feet as a dead man. But that's also the point, right? There's there's fear and there's fear. Uh, it's it's one of the great ironies in the uh, in the Bible. Those who fear the Lord have no need to fear the Lord. Right? That's that's how the Bible teaches us to think. Those who fear the Lord have no need to fear the Lord. Um, And John has just shown, well, he has the fear of the Lord. And so the Lord says to John, oh, fear not. Fear not. You with the fear of the Lord, fear not. Uh, Now, this is a theme that runs... uh, Right through the Old Testament, let's just go to um, uh, maybe the best statement of it as to exactly what the fear of the Lord is about by, by implication. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Good understanding belongs to all those doing them. His praise stands forever. Now, um, if you find that statement a little confusing, uh, there's good reason for that, right? Because he doesn't define them. Um, Good understanding has the one... uh, doing them. Well, whatever the them is, it's the essence of the fear of the Lord. Everyone doing them, the fear of the Lord, he has has good understanding. So, what's the them? Well, as we've said before, you get a really nice picture of what the them is 
in, uh, in Psalm 19. So Psalm 19, first half of the psalm, remember, heavens declare the glory of God. Second half of the psalm, a celebration of uh, the written word of God. And here's how it goes in Psalm 19, verse 7 and following. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the law of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true. Now there it's unmistakable. What what is the fear of the Lord? Well, the fear of the Lord is the precepts, the commands, the rules, the instruction. And hence, Psalm 1110, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. Right understanding has every... Everyone doing them. Well, it's clear what them is. Word of God. Word of God. Everyone living this sense of obedience to those with that sort of outlook. Jesus says, fear not. Now, as we're going to see, that's exactly the opposite thing that the Roman Empire is going to say to these people for the same reason. It's exactly the opposite thing that most cultures, that most Christians have lived in down through the ages, say to the same group of people. You want to reverence God? You ought to be afraid to do that. Because we'll make you pay. That was certainly their case in the first century. So the question becomes, and in this vision it's plain, what wisdom is. Wisdom is to fear the right thing. To fear the Lord. Rather than to fear... Uh, what we'll see going forward all around them is uh, this alternative to the will and ways of God. Um, Matthew 10, verse 28. Jesus warning his disciples how it will be. And this, this idea is absolutely central to what's going on in the book of Revelation. And we'll see this theme repeated, especially through the seven churches and then through the whole middle of uh, the book of Revelation. But Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear from those killing the body but not being able to kill the soul. But rather, fear the one who is able also. 
soul, and body to destroy in hell. Now, that's not very comforting on its surface, is it? Don't fear people who can merely put you in prison for 15 years. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about people who could execute you. Don't worry about them. Well, we're still, of course, in the tiny, tiny, tiny minority of, uh, of Christians in the world where those things are as distant away as they are for us. Um, lots of our fellow believers spread around the world today, though that's a, that's a daily issue. I mean, there's all kinds of countries. We review these on Tuesday morning, all kinds of countries where it is illegal for a Christian to witness to a Muslim in, in a certain country. If you do that, all bets are off. You could be killed. You could certainly go to prison. Um, uh, or your family will kill you. Um, so who are you going to fear? And, and his, his, this vision is be sure you fear God. Be sure you fear the Lord Jesus. Um, uh, Don's just started into uh, Deuteronomy on Sunday night. Uh, the poem at the end of Deuteronomy is uh, one of the more uh, theologically loaded uh, places in all the Old uh, Testament, uh, chapters uh, uh, 32 and 33. And the... Uh, uh, there's references in, uh, in, in the margin here um, of, of Revelation, uh, our little vision, over to that poem. Now, I let my bookmarker drop out, so now I've got to go find Revelation 1 again. Um, so standing right over uh, beside... Um, this verse that we're looking at, uh, you'll find a reference to Deuteronomy 32, verse 40. And, I, and I've tied uh, uh, verses 39 to it. So Deuteronomy 32, verse 39 and 40. See now, I, I am he. There is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. Wound and I heal. There is no one that can rescue from my hand. I lift up unto the heavens my hand, as if swearing an oath, And I say, I am alive forevermore. Um, Going forward in uh, in our text this morning, notice what Jesus says next about himself. Fear not, I am the first and the last. And 
the living one. I am the first and the last and the living one. Deuteronomy 32, 40, I am alive forevermore. I am the one who simply and absolutely is. Isaiah 44, 2. It's constantly making references back to the Old Testament, as we've said 635 times, according to one set of editors' readings. Nobody knows what the exact number is to these allusions, but these are, are the ones that I'm referring to here. Are, nobody really disputes them. You find them right in the uh, margin of, uh, of, the, of the Greek New Testament. Um, Isaiah 44, um, verse 6 to start with. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. And Jesus says this about himself. I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. He's claiming to be Yahweh out of of the Old Testament. Um, and the idea again, um, you know, Jim, after our opening song this morning, you know, had had uh, had us call out Yahweh. Well, the meaning of uh, Yahweh is uh, rooted, as we noted a couple weeks ago, in Exodus three fourteen, um, which the Septuagint translates, "I am the one who is." Uh, I am the one who is. And here Jesus says the same thing in a slightly different twist. I am the first and the last, the living one. In other words, eternally living. I am simply the living one. Where all life comes from, Um, He switches then and adds the mystery of the incarnation. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, right? Great problem. How does the living one die? Well, he doesn't. He can't. He can't. But the man Christ Jesus can. He was born. He dies. He's raised from the dead. Uh, Jesus' body goes into the grave for several days. He really, he really died. Um, you know, it's like, uh, again, uh, you know, I get a, a lot of my theology from, you know, uh, the Wizard of Oz, uh, where, you know, where the munchkins do say, uh, he's not only merely dead, he's most sincerely really dead. You know, that's the point of being in the grave for several days. So there's death and resurrection here, and yet Jesus is at the same time one who can die and can't die. 
as to his essence of God, he can't die. He's the living one. In the next, in the very next phrase, though, he says, and I was dead. And I'm alive forevermore. Well, that theologians have written about that now for a couple of thousand years. And, and really, what they, what, what they come to is, to, is, is something like this. Here's what Christians confess. Here's what they came up with and placed into our, our creeds. Uh, uh, Jesus, Jesus is one person, but with two natures. Divine nature and human nature. Natures aren't mixed. They don't bleed into one another. They don't uh, infect uh, one another. Um, but they're both. But they're 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 both quite real, and they're both always part of Jesus. And and as to Jesus, divine nature, of course, he is not capable of dying. God can't die. As to his human nature. He's capable of dying. But the, but the point is, he's spoken of here, not that the human nature of Jesus died, but that the person of Jesus died. Which somehow includes his, human, his, his divine nature, but the divine nature doesn't die. So how, how is that done? You know, don't know. Um, don't know. Um, and you can go and read... You can read a lot of pages written about that, and then when you get all done, you say, "Oh, we don't know." Um, uh, and I, I don't, I don't say that to uh, downplay that kind of reading. I, it's very worthwhile. I've done that reading. I'll do it again, uh, and I'll find out in the end. Uh, we don't know because um, that—that's clearly uh, the, the 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 study into this is uh, is is really extensive. Um, uh, but now, Deuteronomy 32, 39, and 40, one, one more time. And this time, under the keys of death and of Hades. Deuteronomy 32, 39, and 40. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides thee. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. I lift up my hand to heaven, and I swear as I live forever. I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal, is a way of saying, I have death and Hades in my hand. I decide these things. I decide who lives, who dies, who lives forever, who does not. I decide all of those things. Uh, Closely related to that, and we won't, well, we'll, Drop back to Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. Same idea. Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. 
another And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Jesus closes into death who he wishes. He brings out from death who he wishes. Um, He has the keys of death and of hell. He decides heaven and hell. And... And we talk about such things, right? This is, this is what is really behind uh, those words. And then we'll pause uh, and take uh, questions so we don't run out of time and you think I'm he's just ducking questions week after week. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want that kind of thing going around. Um, so, so Matthew 16, Matthew 16, 19. Roman Catholicism tended in the classical, in the Middle, uh, middle Ages, to seize on, on, on a text like this and, uh, and give the, um, the magisterium in the church and the priesthood a tremendous amount of power that I don't think the text is designed to give any group of people other than believers at large. Um, uh, but here's what, here's what the text says, and it's related to Jesus having the power of death and of Hades. And I shall give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you may bind upon the earth shall be having been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose upon the earth, it shall be having been loosed in heaven. So what does that mean? Well, I think it means, it simply means this. So you, you go out and, uh, and, and you're, you're witnessing to somebody, right? So you're witnessing to somebody and you're telling them that they can have their sins forgiven by placing their faith and trust in, in Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so, and they, they go back and forth with you, and then they say, oh, yes, yes, we would like, we, we would like to uh, pray with you, and uh, I would like to be a follower of Jesus. And so then they pray with you. And then in a charity of judgment, uh, or judgment of charity, you say, well, um, the New Testament would say that you have now passed from death unto life. And that um, you know, when you come to the end of your life, you should have no fear, for you have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now you're saying that you, you can't get anybody into heaven. Uh, you can't qualify anybody uh, for heaven, but Jesus can, and he does these things through his word, and he uses people like you and I to speak those words. And he is just telling you, you can actually, you can actually hand out hope like that, and you can take hope away. Uh, somebody says, look, 
I don't go, I don't go in. I just think, I just think everybody goes to heaven. And um, that, that's my view. And I don't think you have to believe anything in particular. And um, that, 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 that's my view. You have your view. I, I have my view. And we say, well, but my view is backed by divine revelation and your view isn't. So I'm just warning you, you're, if you hang on to that, you will perish forever. You're not going to heaven. You're not. So, well, you can't go around saying things like that. Well, Jesus is telling his disciples, oh, no, you have to say things like that. Because you represent me, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. I'm the one who decides all those things. And you simply go out and speak my words after me. And and we'll come back to this in in a minute. But this, this is what it means to be the church. And this is what makes the church, so we'll see, lamp-like. Like, whoa. It's not the building. It's you. It's people who go out with these beliefs, speaking this message, representing this Lord who has the keys of death and of Hades. Any questions up to this point? All right, Eric. A plant. He's a plant. He's asking me easy, easy question. Okay, Eric, go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, on our band trip last year, we visited a Catholic cathedral, and they one part of the we went on a tour through it, and they had confession booths in the corner. And one of our students asked the tour guide, "Why do the Catholics believe that you have to confess your sins?" No, no. Great question. This is, this is, this is the heart of the Reformation. This is the heart of Luther's great discovery, uh, theological rediscovery, actually, where he's jumping back to Augustine. So here's what he sees. This is what he says. The Lord has placed... Well, here's how you put it. The one who has the keys of death and of hell, he stands forth through the word written on a page that all of his people have access to. Rome says, no, no. He stands forth through the magisterium and the priesthood system. That's where he stands forth. And Luther says, no, he doesn't. He stands forth through the word. And so you have the authority of Jesus through his word, not through a priest, 
not through a pope in Rome, but through the very Bible that you have in your house that you can read and study and come to understand. That's how it works. That's how it works. And so that's the response. That's the Protestant response. That was the Reformation's response to that system. And, uh, and of course, one of the things that, that helped Luther arrive there was as a younger man, he visits Rome and sees what the upper echelon priesthood is like. And he sees very clearly these people are not, they don't, they have, they have no idea what God says about anything. They take none of it to heart. You would have to be a fool to, to trust your soul to them. Which, you know, has been down through the ages. It's been a, it's been a challenge, right, for, um, there's devout people in, in the Roman Catholic uh Community, you know, who they read their Bible, they they they, they come to a, a whole, I think, a saving understanding. To, but but all kinds, no. So like I mentioned before, in the community that I had growing up, one of the, the things is at Christ the King Church there in Wonder Lake, it, be, it became just such of a a well known thing, you know. Okay, the uh, Father. Father just can't stay sober for Sunday morning mass. You know, now he's now he's good like two or three weeks in a row now. Father is a little tipsy still when he tries to sober himself up after a certain time in the night, but he fails. And like, oh boy. Well, finally, right? So there's people in that congregation who they go to the confess their sins and like well, who is, like, they have questions about this. This doesn't seem, like, what? Um, what's going on here? And that would be Luther's point. No, no, it's no, you, can't, you can't trust men in, in that way other than people who are taking their stand on the word of God and, and you can follow uh, their words by that word that's how it works. But what they told your students is exactly their view. They all know it's only the priest that has this. And he has it because he's a priest, not because he's in conformity with the word. And that's the great point of rebellion with it. No. And hence the priesthood of all believers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, and, and to make uh, Anna's point, I mean, if you read a biography on Luther, you'll find, I mean, Luther is, I won't try to remember exactly, but I think he's in his 20s. 
the first time he ever sees a Bible in his life. There's not Bibles around. Nobody has them at home. And, and your parish church may or may not. And, they, and even if they do, they don't have one in a language that anybody can understand. Uh, that's, and, and all of that came about, however, by, of course, first making the ministerium what it was, and then, and then a, you know, the politics of, of human beings are such that, well, if you're a priest and you have power, is it to your advantage or not to your advantage to have people uh, not be able to second-guess you? Oh, I would say that would be to my advantage. Well, then let's keep them that way. In fact, our, our, uh, um, we uh, opened this fall in the middle of uh, book three of Calvin's Institutes, and uh, the one that we're reading was 1559, so Calvin was 50 years old when he wrote that. But the, the first edition of that to, came, to come out came out when he was 27 years old in, in, uh, in 1536. And it's in 1536 that Tyndale was burned at the stake for putting the Bible in English. That's how strongly it was felt that giving access to the average person to the word of God in English. Same year that Calvin wrote the, um, the Institutes, the first edition of it, Tyndale is, is, is burned at the stake, and Calvin dedicates the first edition of the Institutes to all of his friends being burned to death in France. Um, because that was widespread there in, uh, in 1536. And it's all to that issue. Um, if, 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 if Eric and I are the priests, and you know nothing, we better be pretty wonderful people if we don't take advantage of the fact that you're convinced. Uh, the one verse we've taught you is that we've got uh, the keys um, and we can open heaven and close it on you if we want. Um, the truth is, Jesus has the keys. And you and I can follow how he opens and closes only by having the word of Jesus. Well, uh, let, we better, let's jump and we'll just close this off. Verse 20, uh, and we'll go to it because it's right in line with what we're talking about. Already, So let's just go to the final verse uh, where, remember those lampstands that the, he appears in the midst of? Um, well, they turn out to be the seven churches. Um, and they're, they're gold lampstands. These churches is golden lampstands. Um, And, and, of course, lamps give out light in a dark place. And that's the image of the church. The church is to be a source of light in a culturally dark place. Now, now think of the reputation. Think of what our, our cultural read on that is. 
Our cultural read on that is predictably exactly backwards. The churches are the dark ages. Churches are backwards. Churches are the dark ages. I forget whether I've said this. I, I know I didn't say it in this class, whether I repeated it in a, in a message recently. But a, a few weeks ago, maybe a, quite a number of weeks ago, I used an illustration from uh, Ari Goldblum's The Search for God at Harvard. And after that illustration, uh, uh, Tim Soundy uh, came up to me uh, right after the service because uh, this spring, Tim's uh, daughter, Laura, had uh, graduated uh, Harvard Law. And so Tim had gone, Tim and Lisa went to the graduation ceremony at Harvard Law. And uh, at Harvard, when they do their graduation, the various uh, schools within the university have representatives come up one by one. So the the medical school, and then the law school, and the, and the divinity school. So the, uh, the representative for the divinity school comes forward to introduce the, uh, the graduating class from Harvard Divinity. And, uh, and she says these two things about herself to introduce uh, the class. She says, I'm an atheist and a lesbian. And the founders of Harvard Divinity School would turn over at their graves if they could see me where I am now. But let them go ahead. Because they can't do anything about it. In other words, what she was saying is, look, the founders of this institution were backward, narrow, and dumb. We're progressive, enlightened, and cutting edge. Right? She's confident. She's absolutely confident that that's the case. People like her, she understands herself to be among the gold lampstands of the 21st century. And John's vision says, she's not, she's not. The church that's faithful to the word of God remains the gold lampstand in this and every other century. And this mighty Jesus, whom we have just been talking about, he moves in the midst of the church. You as Christian people, in other words, in this vision, you as the church, you as Christian people, you are where it's at in the world. You are, as Jesus put it in, uh, and we'll close with this, um, Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city is not able to be hidden. It's put on a mountain. Neither do they take a lamp and put it under a peck measure or under a bed, but on a lampstand. 
and it shines to all who are in the house. So, or thus, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And by your good works, your life shaped by the revealed word of God. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus moves in the midst of the church. Seven gold lampstands. Um, the light of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we go our way, we ask that you would remind us of who you are and what you have done for us and who you have made us to be. And may we live in the light of it in Jesus' name. Amen.